This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Today on the show, working with parents to help parents. Hi everyone, Tom Oates from Child Welfare Information Gateway here. And today we're diving deep into developing and sustaining parent partner programs. Now you may be familiar with parent partner programs, but if not, these bring parents involved in the child welfare system together with parents who've been there before, work to complete their case plan and successfully reunified with their families. Parent partners work with agencies and communities. They actually help in policy development and training. They provide mentorship, guidance, advice, and support. They are a living, breathing resource of what success looks like to those working to strengthen families and for those parents working to reunite with their children. Parent partner programs are being implemented by a number of agencies and organizations across the country. But how do you get one started? And how do you keep it going or even expand the program to reach more families? Well, today we try to answer those questions. So we sat down with a few folks from the state of Iowa who've been able to do just that. Iowa's parent partner program has grown during the past few years and become an example for others across the nation. You're going to hear from Sandy Lynn. She is with the Iowa Department of Human Services, and she serves as the state coordinator for community partnerships. And she's also the program manager for the state's parent partner approach. Also in the conversation is Sarah Persons, and she is with Children and Families of Iowa. Now, they're the organization that runs the contract for Iowa's Parent Partner Program. Sarah is the state coordinator for the program. She's also a master trainer for the Parent Partner Training, and she's been overseeing Parent Partner Programs since 2008. But not only are we joined by the professionals from the agencies and organizations that operate the program, but I'm really glad that we're able to also talk with Jamie Reinburn. She's one of the program's parent partners and a trainer for new parent partners. So we talk about standing up a program, getting buy-in, both figuratively and literally, because the funding has to come from somewhere, what the Iowa program entails, and what it takes to be a successful parent partner. Once we're done, I'll talk about some resources to help you learn a little more. And as a reminder, you can always connect to information, reports, tools, and tips covering the entire continuing of child welfare, at childwelfare.gov. So pay attention here because there's a lot of great information and anecdotal experience that can help you and those you work with develop and grow a parent partner program. So here we go with Sandy Lint, Sarah Persons, and Jamie Reinberg. Sandy Lint, let me start with you. Um, So where did the impetus to develop a parent partner program come from? Well, for several years, we had been working on um, a community organizing strategy. We called it Community Partnership for Protecting Children. And we are continually trying to recruit parents to provide a voice at that table. Um, We didn't have much luck primarily because there wasn't a structure in place to support those parents. They might come once or twice and then um, we wouldn't see them again. We went to a conference. There was a community partnership team here in the state of Iowa that went to a conference in Arizona and our director of child welfare was with us. 
and we heard a parent partner from Kentucky. There were a few original sites that the Family to Family Pro Initiative had promoted the parent partner program. And we heard this woman named Angela. And our whole team was very inspired by her story and by the work that she did. Um, and the team, it was one of those conferences where you're supposed to determine what you do when you leave this conference. And that team said, we are gonna have a parent partner program. And fortunately, our leader was right there alongside listening to everybody's adamantly um, requesting this, this program be implemented in Iowa. When we got back, um, the director said to me, if you can get half the leadership, which that level of leadership, there were eight individuals in the state to agree, we can bring Angela and the trainers that worked in Kentucky to come and speak to the folks in Iowa. And that was Randy Jenkins and Sandra Almenas um, and Angela. It, it took some doing. We got two yeses and a couple maybes. So that was my nod to bring them into the state. And um, we strategically had um, Sandra and Angela tell their story to different groups. We had a, um, a conference call with a lot of supervisors and they spent a day just talking it up. Then we took a team and we sent a team of 10 down to Kentucky to one of their gatherings. Um, and that was very, very helpful to getting people on board. But it took about a year from the time that we went to the conference, the time that we brought the national trainers in to the state. So with that, what was it that got those folks at that senior level to at least give you a maybe, if not give you a yes? What were the convincing value points that you had to get across to that leadership? Really the parent's story yeah. um, really turned the corner. You know, the, the the backlash I was getting when I talked to folks was, is this going to be another person involved in our case? In other words, workers have CASA, county attorney, um, they, they have to speak to this uh, citizen review, foster care review panels. Um, and so the big concern was, is this someone going to come in and again, someone that the workers would have to, for lack of a better word, manage. They have a lot of people involved in these cases. Is this another person? When they heard the parents' stories and the parents were really grateful for their intervention with the State Department, it was a surprise to folks because we don't hear that. Our workers don't hear that. Our leadership doesn't hear that. Um, and they never saw parents again after they were in the system unless they were coming back in the door. Um, so the parent story um, really had a lot of influence on the leadership buy-in. So when you started this, first off, like any program, someone's going to ask you the ultimate question of, okay, how do we fund this? Where did right. you grab the funding from? And then to get that funding, I'm sure there's got to be the talk of, all right, so what are your objectives? What will your outcomes be? So to get the funding, A, how'd you get it? And two, or B rather, uh, what were your intended objectives that you put out there to secure the funding? Well, that's a good question because we really did it on a shoestring and the state didn't put a lot of money towards this. Um, within the community partnership budget, I had enough money to bring in national consultants and, and do some training. We 
put an application process out and said, we will provide the technical assistance and training if the local sites would put up a minimum of $50,000 and that would buy a part-time coordinator and mentoring services just to start the party. Um, and that's what we did. We had four areas that covered um, about 11 counties um, and we gave them a small stipend and asked them to come into town once a month and help us shape the policies and procedures from what they're learning. Um, it was, it was as they say, building a plane as we were flying. <laughs> and we, we had no vision of long-term funding strategies. It was strictly pilot. We're fortunate here in Iowa that there are some local child welfare dollars that are allocated locally and community partnership allocates money locally. So um, local sites use those two fundings. They use local grants from United Way, just patchwork pieces together to come up with dollars. And so what were the initial objectives? And the initial objectives, we wanted a strategy that we could support parents' voice at the table, that we could learn from parents, and we wanted a structure in order to do that. We also wanted a new engagement strategy with families, and we really thought the best way was for families to connect with these wonderful parents that were telling their stories. So we, you know, we sought out DHS workers who would make referrals to families that they had worked with and thought that, you know, they were in solid recovery. A lot of them were come to the attention of the department because of substance abuse. So um, we got recommendations from the workers. That also helped the worker buy-in. That's usually where they got their first referrals. Um, but the objective was really about getting the parents' voice at the table and really coming up with new strategies on engaging families um, in a more meaningful way. We also were mindful of um, the protective factors and the federal outcomes around reabuse and length of stay and permanency goals. Um, those were there, but I'm not so sure in the initial stages we were um, promoting those as much as just getting the parents' voice. All right, so Sarah, let me turn to you here and walk me through just the basics of the program. How, what's the structure? How do you actually operate this thing? Well, we went into a state structure in July 2013. And what our structure looks like for our employees at CFI, we have a state coordinator, um, that's me. We have um, five service area coordinators. Our state is, it's broken into five DHS, Department of Human Services, um, uh, service area. So we have one supervisor that oversees, you know, uh, uh, it's somewhere between 10 counties and 30 counties. Um, and then under them, there are local coordinators and they, um, they oversee the parent partners and those local areas. And they typically oversee somewhere between, you know, three to five counties in, in that area. And so how many people are, are involved at least, well, from the beginning level to where you are now, you know, what kind of staff uh, involvement are, are, is, is the commitment here? Well, we have over 150 pair partners that are mentoring across the state of Iowa. We have 18 local coordinators, five service area coordinators, and myself. So when it comes to not only the parents you are helping, but the parents who are now parent partners, what's the, the ratio in terms of how many parents can you actually look at and say, 
Yeah, parent partners will help these parents or these families. And I want to, you know, partner them up with, you know, these veteran parents, so to speak. So uh, what's the ratio in terms of how many parent partners you have on staff and how many parents you can actually help with the program? Well, each parent partner can mentor up to 15 individuals. So that's, I mean, that's the max amount we want them to be mentoring. Each coordinator can oversee 15, up to 15 um, parent partners. So, and then um, the number that are being mentored, each coordinator can mentor or can oversee up to 225 parents per local coordinator in their cluster site. And so when you mention mentoring, you know, what are we really asking those parent partners to do? What's, what's kind of in their scope that they can, you know, mm -hmm. that they can use those skills and those talents and those experiences to help those parents? Um, the biggest thing they do is walk, walk through the child welfare system, the court process, the family team meetings, um, those types of things. And I know Jamie will talk more about that and kind of what she does on a day-to-day -day basis um, during her part of the interview. But that's the biggest thing that they do. They just, you know, they're there. Um, if they're having an issue, they have a question, they can call them um, and help help find a service or help be redirected or directed to where they need to be going. Did you guys find that that was one of the key objectives that you wanted to get across in terms of just helping those parents understand the system? Because there are so many steps and so many offices that they need to kind of navigate all while, you know, dealing with the rest of their lives in their own either jobs or, you know, education or treatment programs. Yeah. You know, I think it's this, it's one of the scariest things, you know, a parent would go through. Um, and, and Jamie does a great job of talking about that, but you know, when you're down and out and, and then your kids get removed, then what, you know, and you're scared and, um, to have somebody say, I've been there and I've done that and I'm going to walk through this process with you is it's huge. And, and it makes you, you know, that the parent feel like somebody's on my side. Are there certain either parameters or requirements that you're asking, not of the parent partners, and we can ask Jamie a little bit more about, you know, what it takes to be an effective parent partner, but for the parents you're looking to help, do they need to be in some sort of scenario or what makes you say, this is a parent that could use some help? Well, our referrals come from the Department of Human Services and our target population right now would be those families where the child has been removed from the home or there's some sort of supervision requirement of the parent, like grandma or grandpa needs to move in to provide supervision um, because the, for whatever reason, the situation's not safe for the child. All right, Jamie, let me, let me now turn this to you here. So we talk about uh, with Sarah about what they're looking for in terms of the role of the parent partner. How do they approach you about this? How did they bring, bring this up to you and, and suggest that you could help? Um, my caseworker for the Department of Human Services um, brought the program, the attention to me, um, explained a little bit about the program, um, thought that I would be an asset and benefit the program. So, you know, it, I thought it was a way for me to give back. When you, when you saw that, what was the first thing, though, that came through your mind when they said, hey, we've got this new program and, and you'd be great for it? 
I was honored, honestly, to be um, to have them think that I'd be an asset to the program, considering when I came into the eyes of the Department of Human Service, I was so broken and so beat down that I didn't think I had any value to myself, let alone my children or anyone else. So now that they they instituted this and they and they and they rope you in, talk to me about training, because now you're in a different position within the child welfare system. What were the key things that they made sure that you had to have those like either skills or techniques to help other families? Well, for me, I think the biggest thing is you have to have compassion and passion for working with people. Um, You have to have uh, outlook of the Department of Human Services that they're there to help so that we can um, then encourage our families not only to engage with services, but to look at their um, caseworker as a support instead of someone who's there just to make their life harder. So we go through all kinds of trainings, um, DHS 101, we go through building a better future where we sit at the table with DHS, Department of Human Service workers, you know, and we tell our stories and, you know, we go through, like we just did training like for human trafficking and there's domestic violence, you know, because not everyone comes into the eyes of the department for the same reason. It's a vast array of reasons why children are removed. And so just because like mine was substance abuse, me having understanding of the system, um, the court system, what the family's feeling with the removal, it doesn't matter why their children were removed, I can still relate to them. Mm-hmm. So what is that interaction that you have, not only with, with the parents, but also with the caseworker as well? Where do you fit in with this relationship? Well, my relationship is with with the mother who comes in and has had her child removed. Um, I'm there to be a support for her, to let her know that she's not alone, you know, that she can not only get her kids back, but be successful. And my role is to try and empower them to, you know, be able to ask for services and be able to speak up on what they need for their family to be successful and how to utilize and interact with the department and the caseworkers to benefit everyone involved. How much contact on a weekly basis do you have with with each of your mentees? Um, with the families I work with, some of them I have daily contact, some of them that are progressing in their case. I mean, I at least talk to them once or twice a week. I see them once a week. Some that are at the beginning stages of their case, you might spend a lot more time with them because they're really in crisis. I mean, their children have been removed and they don't know where to go. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know, they're scared. They're scared and alone and they don't know who to trust. And so I'm there to try and help them build them up to let them know, let's just tackle one thing at a time. You know, so when they go in there, they have a list of things they need to accomplish, you know, and Sometimes it's very overwhelming and they get lost in the shuffle sometimes. So if you can break that down and like, here, let's just get this one thing done this week and then we'll work on the next thing next week and make it tangible for them. It's easier for them to be successful. How much of this, because I'm gathering from what you're talking about, there is you are you know, walking them through the system, what they need to get done, the processes and steps of, of this, you know, this endeavor that they're on. Correct. But there's, there's also a sense of, of kind of you're there as, as kind of a coach, as kind of a, a, a confidant for them. So how much work are you doing deals with the steps that they need to accomplish? But then there's also the emotional counseling, so to speak, that you're adding. How much of your role is one versus the other? Um, I think it depends on on each case. I mean, some are more emotionally needy because of the things that are going on. Some come into the system and have no family support. 
I was lucky enough to have all my family rally around me, you know what I mean? So I had people I could turn to, but there's some people that their whole family's unhealthy. So they come in, they have nobody but me. So some days it's 50-50, some days I'm doing more of helping them find the services and resources in the community to help them not only be successful, but not come into the eyes of the department again. And then some is, they just need a shoulder to lean on. They need someone who can understand, relate, and let them know that here, you've made some mistakes, but it doesn't make you necessarily a bad mom. You know, it doesn't mean you love your children any less. It's just, you know, we're going to try and get you the help that you need so you and your family can be together and be successful and happy. How much of your own past experiences do you rely upon when you're conveying stories or, or guiding somebody through the process? Uh, I rely on a lot of my past experiences. That's how I can relate to people of, I mean, different social economics, different experiences, what they go through. I mean, I got my own childhood trauma. I got my own substance abuse, my own family dynamics that I think I can relate to almost anyone. And I rely on that, you know, and sometimes when you're working with a client or a mom, all they want to know is here. I know what you're going through because that same thing happened to me or I can relate to you because, you know what I mean, I felt that same way, you know, at one point in my life, you know what I mean? And it does get better. How do you personally manage just the stress and the stories that you're hearing from all these families? How do you, how do you get by as, as a person dealing with your day-to-day life? I mean, this can be, this can be stressful for the professionals and, and you're in that boat too now. How do you kind of keep afloat? I think a lot of it, I mean, it depends on like, I have to know what my own limitations are and I have to know what um, I'd have to do to keep myself healthy on a daily basis. And um, for me, it's knowing, having clear boundaries and setting things and knowing like if there's something that I can't do or letting my client know that here, I can't help you with that, but I can give you, get you in the right direction to help you with that. But like I, I'm active still in recovery. I, I still have a therapist, you know, I still, I reach out to my coordinators. I mean, I've had my own family crises along the way since being a parent partner. And I have to make sure that my home life is my home life and my work life is my work life, you know, and making sure I can balance both and not putting myself in danger. Then therefore I can't help my families that I work with. Right. So for those agencies that are thinking about developing a parent partner program or somebody who is thinking about maybe becoming a parent partner if this was offered to them, what what makes somebody in your position successful? What are the skills that, that they really need to, to, to do the job well? Well, I think they need to have um, a passion for what they're doing. They have to have compassion and empathy for the people that they work with. Um, I think they have to um, understand people's lives are different than theirs and understand that we have to have, be very objective and keep our own biases to ourselves. Because sometimes we work with clients that we might not necessarily understand what they're going through or some of the choices they make, but that doesn't mean I can't still help that family. So what keeps you coming back? I mean, what's, where, where does it come to the retention of these folks? Because it's, it's a job. Uh, and you've been doing this for about, I guess, four and a half years. So um, what keeps you and, and, and your peers from, from keeping, you know, putting this energy and this effort in? For me, um, the reason I keep coming back is because I enjoy helping these families grow. I enjoy seeing them getting their kids back. I enjoy every aspect of my job. I mean, I love working with people. I love that, you know what I mean? 
that I get to see the highlights of their life. I get to see them when they get their kids back. I get to see them, you know what I mean, when they make the connection on why they got involved with the department and how to make those changes, you know. I get to see that, and that, I mean, it gives me joy. When you're talking to either a neighbor or a family member or somebody and you're explaining this to them, what are those stories that you share about Leonard kind of like the good moments from what you do that's kind of stuck in your heart about a, a particular family? Um, like I, I have a mom that has had, I mean, sometimes when you have previous DHS experience, the Department of Human Services, your kids have been involved before, mm-hmm. you come in with a predisposed, you know, notion of what the department does. And when you can break down those walls and you can build that relationship between the work caseworker and the mom to be successful and to work together. I mean, it's like you see a light bulb kind of go off, you know, and they make the connection that the Department of Human Services are not this horrible enemy. They are someone there that are actually looking out for children, which I was thankful DHS came into my life. I mean, I actually honestly thank the lady because she saved my children's lives, you know, and making them understand that they're not bad people. They don't enjoy removing children. It's their job and they have to do it for the safety of the family. So Sandy, let me touch back and, and go go to you here. So after you've been able to implement this, and I know you went statewide a couple of years back, if there's another state or another agency looking to develop a parent partner program, what do you stress to them over anything else uh, that they should do? You must have parents involved in the planning, the development, and the implementation. Their voice needs to be front and center. I feel it's the state's job to really listen to them and sort of figure out, take their ideas and help support how they want to approach providing the mentoring services. I also think it's key to have leadership from the top um, and from the local level. It, without it, you can't do it. Um, it needs to be a partnership. We we call it the three-legged stool. It needs to be the parent partner, the coordinator, and the DHS supervisor at the local level need to be in on all decisions. And we, we have modeled ourselves around that concept. But parents and their stories and their ability to connect with family are key. You have to take the time to nurture the trust between DHS and those parents. If there is distrust at all or there's a parent running rogue, it it can um, have some setbacks for your program. So being able to have those open communications and building the trust and recognizing that there's going to be some relapse, there's going to be some things that... um, are going to need to be addressed along the way. But as long as everybody's got a full understanding of that and they build that trust factor is the most important thing. Well, finally, Sarah, you know, as Sandy talks about implementing a program and the buy-in you need at all at at kind of a three-legged stool, how do you sustain it? How do you keep this program going year after year and and potentially, as you guys have done, expand this across a larger region? Well, I think that for us, sustainability has been important and successful thus far because we have buy-in through leadership of the department and with community providers um, throughout the state. Um, We are always asking parents at the end of their DHS case if they want to be parent partners, so we're constantly training new ones all the time. 
in terms of some numbers to just show you the growth in the last three years, the first year our target number to mentor was 850. We mentored over 1,200. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, our target number is 1,800, and we've already met that. Wow. So I think sustainability is, it's it's a program that just kind of sells itself because they're the experts at the table, and they and they do amazing work. Sandy Lint, Sarah Persons, and Jamie Redburn, thank you guys so much. Thank you. What I liked about that the most was that we could bring both the perspectives from the decision makers within the state, along with those implementing the program, and the parent partners themselves. So many programs are executed and sustained at that ground, that grassroots level, but the direction, the investment, and the buy-in from the top is just as important. Now, if you head to childwelfare.gov and search podcasts, we'll have a link to a description of Iowa's parent partner approach from the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse, along with some resources from Information Gateway on family engagement and partnering with families to improve child welfare outcomes, along with a parent partner job description. So I want to thank Sandy Lint, Sarah Persons, and Jamie Reinburn for lending their time and their perspective. And I want to thank you for listening and being a part of this community. As always, you can connect with Information Gateway at info at childwelfare.gov. Let us know your questions or how we can help you find the information you're looking for. You can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter or visit Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov. Don't forget to grab the free National Foster Care and Adoption Directory app from the App Store or Google Play and check out any of our past podcasts and join us for future conversations. We're aiming to give you new podcasts every month and we're really, really happy to do so. Well, this has been another episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.